0: Alright, well we are in our fifth week uh, on a series we're doing, we're calling it Seven for the Seven Deadly Sins and then the corresponding virtues that go kind of against those sins that we want you to cultivate. And so, so far I have been assigned the sins of sloth and gluttony. And I'm, I'm really hoping that that's just random and that doesn't... I don't want to say anything about my character, but uh, I do love to eat. I'll be honest. So, in this series on the seven deadly sins, some are going to feel more relevant to you than others. Obviously, sin and gluttony seems to kind of impact me, and some are going to impact you more than others. But at the same time, if you pay careful attention as as you're listening to the message, you're probably going to begin to feel like we're being redundant up here—that we're kind of saying the same thing. You'll, you'll you'll be listening, and maybe you'll start to feel some conviction. And then you'll be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said the same thing last week, like the same line. He's, he's just talking about the same stuff, just calling it a different sin. And if you've thought that, you are correct. We are doing that. Makes preparing sermons a lot easier. I just changed the name at the top. Of the, no, that's, that's not what we do. But really, these seven deadly sins are just symptoms of the same sickness. I was talking with a, a friend who's a doctor, he goes to a different church, and he he was telling me some of his frustration because people at his church know that he's a doctor. And so they'll come to him with just a, a list of random symptoms, like my stomach hurts and my big toe's been hurting and I got a headache and like, what is it doc? Do I have cancer? Like what do you think? And he's like, oh, it's just so frustrating, right? Because obviously uh, different sicknesses can cause the same symptoms or the same sickness can cause different symptoms. There's just no way in kind of a, you know, a brief 10-second exchange that you're going to know as a doctor. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking that is definitely true. The latter of that is definitely true spiritually, that though our symptoms may be different, we have the same spiritual sickness of sin. We've all rebelled against God, and because of that, we've put ourselves first, and therefore our desires are now disordered. Good and necessary desires that we need to survive and to flourish naturally drift toward becoming idolatrous cravings, which addict us and drive us and define us. The Bible calls them mega-desires mega desires they're mega they're beyond all other desires even beyond our desire for god they're idols and so every desire that we have now in this fallen state every desire is now drawn toward excess not that every desire necessarily is in excess but it's drawn there and depending on your personality and your experiences you will gravitate toward certain desires and struggle with excess more in those areas And so then how how sin, how the sickness of sin is expressed will vary in each person, but it tends to vary in about seven basic ways, which is what we're talking about in our series. And so today we're talking about gluttony. If you think about gluttony, it's really just a form of greed. Greed is very broad, and greed is this excessive desire for possessions. And we're going to do a, another sermon on this, but I just want to quickly say greed is the successive desire for possessions that can be motivated by all kinds of, of sub-desires. A desire for security, so you just need more and more stuff to feel secure, it's never enough. Or you, you have a, a desire for power, and so you need to gather things for that. Or you need to impress people because you feel insecure. There's all these different motivations for greed, but one of the motivations for greed is gluttony a desire to, to consume excessively for your own physical gratification. So you have desires, you want to consume things to, to bring you pleasure, to gratify your desire, but you do that in excess. And gluttony comes from the Latin word glutire which means to gulp. So think of somebody just, you know, just gulping something down, just pounding some drink. It's this excessive, self-centered consumption, undisciplined, Overindulgence that consumes resources and energy that should go to help the needy. Ancient and medieval uh, theologians talked a lot about gluttony, much more than we do in America today. Uh, and they, they identified three basic ways of being gluttonous. And if you look in your notes, I, I This got reversed, this got put at the second point, but I'm going to make it my first point. Three ways of being gluttonous, and they said it's consuming, the first way is consuming too much quantity, too much quantity, and you can think food, because that's the obvious one, Uh, too much food, so it's the guy who goes back to the buffet bar after he's already stuffed, that's me, pretty much. I go back, hometown buffet, I just love those little uh, popcorn shrimp and so I've eaten a bunch, but I just, I want more, right? My stomach says enough, but my mouth says we need to taste more of this. And so you just keep eating that. That would be, that would be gluttony in terms of quantity, too much. There's also uh, gluttony in the, terms, the sense of consuming too much quality, too much quality. And I think many of us, that's maybe a little more where the struggle is. And so, you know, it's fine to go out to a nice restaurant once in a while. I'm not putting that down, but it's, it's when you say, you know what? I hate just eating normal food. Let's just go out to a nice restaurant every night, right? Not just every night, every meal. And I'll admit that I have fantasized about that. But it's probably not a good use of resources, according to the the ancient medievals. And then the third way is consuming without patience, without the self-control to wait, to control yourself. And so I'm going to throw all the kids at NOVA under the bus here. But yeah, if you've gone out to plaza time, you know that when you get out to the table for the food, you're trying to decide, what am I going to eat here, right? Do I go for the healthy version, or do I eat those donut holes? And as you're standing there, suddenly there's this rush of kids, because all the parents have gone and signed out their kids. And so from the Sunday school rooms, there's this rush, like a mad, like a, like a tsunami of children coming for you, and you're like, whoa, and they don't have any self-control, and so they run to the table, and they're like pushing, elbowing through, and like grabbing, and food and stuffing it in their mouth, and they got like three cookies in one hand, and bunch of brownies and the other, that would, be this, that would be the form of gluttony where, where you don't have patience, you don't have the self-control to wait, you see people around the table and you're like, hey, hold off, let's just wait a second and then we'll, you know, politely go up, the kids don't do that, and so it's when you have this desire and, and you just trample over other people to satisfy it, you're like, I need this, I can't wait, even if there's people in my way, I'm going to trample them to get what I want, that would be a third way of gluttony. Now, the medievals also identified three basic areas, three kinds of gluttony, three areas where we're prone to gluttony, and the obvious one is food and drink, very obvious. We all, that's what we think of when we think of gluttony, and it's, it's true. We, uh, as Americans, we struggle with food and drink uh, gluttony, we do. The second one, though, is maybe not as obvious, but I think it's intuitive once you consider it, and that is entertainment. Entertainment is a form, can be a form of gluttony. Uh, I like watching football. I really do. And so for me, it's easy after church to go home, and if I have nothing else scheduled, to to watch nine hours straight of football. Very easy. Maybe longer. Yes. But you know what? It's beforehand, in my mind, it sounds like a perfect way to spend the day. But after I finished it, I feel kind of gluttonous. I feel kind of the same way that I felt if I just ate a huge meal way too much. It's like, you know what? I like football. But I really didn't need to spend nine, ten hours in front of a TV watching football. And so you can spend energy and time and resources entertaining yourself that really you could spend that more productively, better doing something else with your family, you know, something else more productive, more God-honoring. It's also, maybe one, some of you non-football fans, just your phone, You pull out your phone, and, and, and you look at it, and, and we all do. I do this at home, and I'll catch myself, and my kids will be like, Dad, you're on your phone again! And I'm just sitting there, like, randomly, like, do-do-do-do-do. And, and, uh, but it can be a form of gluttony. There's nothing wrong with having a nice phone, and a nice iPhone, whatever the newest 19, or whatever the newest version is. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But it can be gluttonous when you're constantly spending time doing this, and you're ignoring relationships, you're ignoring other priorities, other things that should be done. You're, you're spending, your are gluttonous in, in the amount of time you're spending on that phone. And then the third category is anything that can be used for comfort, can be used, can be consumed for comfort. And obviously, that's, a, that's my catch-all catch category. Um, anything that can be used for comfort is an opportunity for gluttony. So, and this is, it's so broad here. Um, I mean, think, here's, here's one example. Think, uh, AC can be used for gluttony. AC is really handy right now. In, in where we live and other places, AC is really nice. But you're at home and you're like, you know what? I could be okay at 76 degrees in my house. I could be okay. It's not like I'm going to be sweating profusely or anything. I could be okay, but I would prefer that it's 68 degrees because then I would feel cool. And then when I come into the house, it'd be like coming into like, like, a, like a refrigerator. I'd be like, ah, you know, awesome. And then, and then when I sleep at night, I can snuggle up in my hoodie because I like to sleep when it's kind of cold and cozy. That's maybe gluttonous, right? You're, you're using the earth's resources and you're using money in a way that you really don't need to spend it on. A little bit gluttonous. Or you're like, you know what? I could wash my dishes. I have dishes. I can use them and then wash them. But it's so much easier to use disposable dishes right? It's just, I don't have to wash them. I, just, I don't even have to put them in the, in the dishwasher. I just throw them right in the trash. If you do that all the time, it's probably gluttonous. Or let's say your wife is at Sprouts and you just happen to wander over to living spaces. Not that this has ever happened to me, but it just, <laughs> just happened to. You. And you, you're not in the market for a new couch. You're, the couch you have at home is perfectly acceptable, fine, it's comfortable. But you just happen to be walking through living spaces, and you notice this beautiful couch. Perfect leather upholstery. Uh, it's comfortable, but it doesn't sag too much. It's just the right amount of, right amount of give, uh, reclining, massage chairs built into it with heating and cooling pads. So in the summer, it keeps my, keeps my lower body cool. In the winter, it keeps me warm. It's just perfect. And all of a sudden, I feel like I need that. I have a nice couch, but boy, I sure need this couch. That might be a form of gluttony. Now, this is very vague, and I've been quoting ancient medieval opinions on gluttony, so let's get into scripture here. Let's look at a biblical illustration of gluttony in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. See what Jesus has to say about this topic. And as you're turning there, let me just give a little background. Right before this, the chapter right before this, actually, actually, in chapter 19, 18 and 19, Uh, Jesus tells a parable called the parable of the dishonest steward. It's a very kind of a strange, controversial, provocative parable because it's about a steward who hasn't been real ethical in the way he's using his his master's money. He's been skimming off the top. The master finds out about it, and so he's like, look, you're going to have to get all the books ready, all the accounting, all the papers you've done, and and bring them here because he's like the accountant for the estate. He's like, you're going to have to bring them to me because you're going to lose your job, and I want to see how the money's been spent. And so this guy's like, what in the world am I going to do? I don't want to beg, I'm weak, I don't want to dig and do manual labor. And so he uses the master's money to make friends with people who are in debt with the master. So he's like, you owe $800, cut that down to $400. You owe this much, let's cut it in half. And so he uses, he literally uses the master's money to make friends for himself who will welcome him and allow him to live with them and perhaps even work for them once he loses his job. Sounds very unethical. Why would Jesus tell a story like that? And then right after that, Jesus makes three very provocative statements. He says, first, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Then he says, second, if you have not been trustworthy with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? Literally, with truth. That's kind of Strange. And then third, he says, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and wealth, God and mammon. Very confusing statements, very provocative, at least for Jesus' original audience, and it should be for us if we hadn't heard it like a hundred times. And so Jesus then goes on to illustrate this with another parable, and that's where we start here. Luke chapter 16, I'm going to read through the whole parable, starting in verse 19, and then I'm going to go back and unpack it a little bit more. So there was a rich man... Who, lit, "'who was dressed in purple and fine linen "'and lived in luxury every day. "'At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, "'covered with sores and longing to eat "'what fell from the rich man's table. "'Even the dogs came and licked his sores. "'The time came when the beggar died "'and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. "'The rich man also died and was buried in hell "'where he was in torments. "'He looked up and saw Abraham far away "'with Lazarus by his side.' So he called to him, him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and son Lazarus to dip the tip of his tongue in water and cool, or the tip of his finger, sorry, not his tongue, that would be really weird, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed." so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torments. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. "Uh, No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So start back, jump back to the very beginning, verse 19. The rich man symbolizes a man whose highest good is his own physical gratification, the gratification of his physical desires. That is his highest good in life. It says he's dressed in purple. That's referring to his outer clothes. In, in the ancient times, purple was a very expensive dye. And so to have purple clothes, you had to be very, very wealthy to afford them. So he's dressed in purple. I don't know if I would call that gluttony. That's probably just pure greed. Every day he dresses in, in like, it'd be the equivalent of the finest Italian suits. Every day he's wearing this fine Italian suit because he wants people to know I've got some money. But it goes on. It says, and fine linen. Linen... When it's used this way, it refers to linen undergarments, your undies, your uh, men back then and women too would wear kind of a combo, kind of like a long t-shirt is your underwear. Every day he wore linen, it says fine linen, and the the Greek word there for fine, it's the, the softest, most expensive Egyptian cotton. That's what it's referring to, really, the softest, most expensive Egyptian cotton, so soft. So breathable, no chafing, I mean, not like the old wool underwear that everybody else has to wear. He 's got the fine, soft Egyptian cotton. But the thing about this, this is gluttony here. Nobody knows that he 's wearing soft, soft Egyptian cotton undies. Nobody knows. And, I mean, it, probably not, right They 're not like peering under his robes. This is just for himself. he 's not showing off. He's just every day he 's wearing these soft, soft underwear it cost him a lot of money, but it feels really, really good. So he 's got soft underwear. Nice clothes. It says he lived in luxury every day. Probably the better translation would be that he ate scrumptuously every day. He ate scrumptuously. That word for scrumptuous, it it refers to really good food and lots of it. So quality and quantity. He's got the best kinds of food and he's got lots of it in abundance. And he does it every day, which means his servants never get a Sabbath. In the Bible, the Old Testament, Moses says. God, through Moses, says, you got to take a day off once a week where you don't cook things. And that's not just for you. It's also for the wealthy people who have servants because they need a break. They need a day to be able to honor God and to rest. This guy doesn't follow that principle. Maybe for himself he doesn't do anything, but he makes his servants prepare food for him every Sabbath, every day. Now, at his gate is laid a beggar named Lazarus who's covered with sores. And this is interesting because Lazarus, this name, this is the only time in all of Jesus' parables where a character is given a name, a proper name. Lazarus means the one God helps. He represents a person who's depending on God for help, which is ironic because it seems like God is not helping him in this parable. He seems to be the opposite of what his name means, his circumstances. He's a beggar because he's sick and he's immobile, he can't move himself, he has to be carried to the gate, and so he has sores. We don't know what exactly those are in Jesus' mind, but it could just be bed sores, right, because he can't move himself, he may be paralyzed. And so every day he's carried there to to this gate, so the rich man has a villa, and we begin to get the idea here that this rich man probably is a large landowner, at this time in Palestine, the taxes were very heavy, and so a lot of people to, to pay taxes had borrowed money from, from, uh, from money lenders, and then the, you know, the interest was crazy, and so eventually they had to sell their property, their family estate, their property, to a, a, a landlord, and they would continue then to work on their land, but as tenants, it didn't belong to them anymore. And so probably that's kind of the image here that Jesus has. You have this very wealthy landowner who lives in a villa in an estate. The rest of the community are probably tenant farmers. They don't have a lot of resources to help this Lazarus. They may help him occasionally, but the only one with significant resources in the community is this landowner. And so they carry him to the gate, and it says, Lazarus longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So generally, uh, in the layout of these houses in these villas, the door, the front door of the house and the house itself would not be very far from the gates. And so Lazarus is sitting there, and he can smell what the rich man is eating. He can smell it. It's like when I, I come down to Amo to church, and, and on Sundays, but other days, too, I'm bringing my family, and my kids are like, we drive by In-N-Out Burger, and they're like... Pfft. Right? And you just want to like pull in and get some animal style fries right then, because it's like it smells so good. That's what Lazarus is experiencing. He's like he's he's against the against the gate and he just smells it. And he's longing, right? He's hungry, he's famished, he's he's starving, he smells that good food. Even if he could just get the leftovers, but he doesn't get anything. The only ones who actually help Lazarus are the rich man's guard dogs. They come and they lick his sores just kind of this interesting idea ancients understood that the saliva of dogs actually is good for you it's good for your for sores and so they understood that so it's actually the guard dogs are kind of helping him but it's also shameful that he's laying in the dirt being licked by dogs so it's kind of this this on one hand it's it was nice of the dogs if you could say that but on the other hand it's very very shameful that he's in this situation finally he dies and it says the angels carry him to Abraham's side literally Abraham's bosom his chest and so it's this image of this banquet where in, in those days you'd recline at a banquet where you're eating. And so he's reclining right next to, uh, to Abraham, this beautiful banquet in heaven. He's given a place of honor. And so ultimately God does help Lazarus. Ultimately he does. God vindicates his name. But I think that's only part of Jesus' point here because he goes on. He doesn't stop the parable there. He makes it clear that God also wanted to help Lazarus during his earthly life. That's why he provided this rich man with so much wealth and why he put Lazarus right in front of his gates. This rich man could have used his earthly wealth to make friends with Lazarus and to bless him. But instead, the rich man was gluttonous. He used all of God's blessings to just gratify his own physical appetites. He was like this dam that just clogged up the blessings of God on himself. And so eventually he dies too. We all die. He dies too. But instead of being welcomed by Lazarus into heaven, the rich man goes to a place of torment in Hades. He wasn't trustworthy with God's blessings in this life and so he couldn't be trusted with them in the next because he rejected God in this life in favor of temporary earthly pleasure. Once that earthly pleasure in life is done, his pleasure, his happiness ends. And so verse 23 says, In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. As a pastor, I'm often asked what I believe about hell. It's one of the most common questions I get when I'm talking to just a random person who knows I'm a pastor. Pastor. And when I, I, you know, that's a hard thing to jump into, Um, but when I start, often I'll say, okay, well, you know, the the biblical image of fire, that may be metaphorical, and when I say that, people often will literally show visible signs of relief, like, oh, okay, I knew it couldn't be that bad. I mean, it may be a little bit uncomfortable, it can't be that bad, but I continue, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. okay, okay, yeah, it may be symbolic, but it's symbolizing something really bad, okay, it's not like symbolizing like a day at the lake, it's symbolizing like, like real pain, real anguish, and they just stare at me and they're like, huh, what do you mean? See, in, the, in this case, part of the rich man's torment is being able to see God's people in heaven, Jesus often compared hell to a garbage dump right on the outside of Jerusalem. It's a horrible place where people are sent right outside of heaven for those who reject God. And I don't know if you've ever been in a third world dump. It's nasty there. It's like spontaneous combustion fires are burning because of the fumes, the the gases that are being emitted. There's flies everywhere. Like as soon as you go into a third world dump, you're just, flies are just everywhere. They're coming in your mouth and your nose. It's disgusting. The smell is beyond description. It's a horrible place and that's what Jesus is comparing hell to. But the worst torment is that these people in this garbage dump, they can see the people in heaven. And so they weep and they wail, not just because of their pain, because of their frustration for being left on the outside looking in. And I think the natural question that comes to our mind when we think about hell is, well, then why doesn't God have mercy on these people and accept their repentance, right? Why don't people in the garbage dump of hell get a second chance to go into heaven? Why doesn't the rich man get to join Abraham? Surely he's learned his lesson. But Jesus indicates that he hasn't. It's clear that this rich man doesn't like being in hell. Sometimes Christian apologists will act almost like like people want to be in hell. I don't think that's true. I don't think anybody wants to be in hell. This rich man doesn't. But his character hasn't changed. He expects help because he's a descendant of Abraham. In the, in the ancient world, family was everything. And so if you have an ancestor, if you have a father, grandpa, that dude, he's got to take care of you. And so he's, he's like, hey, Father Abraham, oh, I, I see family. Help me out, Father Abraham. And it's clear he wasn't very religious in this life. He was Perhaps Jesus is envisioning him as a Sadducee. Sadducees, they didn't really believe in heaven and hell and all that stuff. This life was all there is in their mind. But he may have thought, you know what, if there is an afterlife, I'll be okay. I don't think there is, but if there is, I'm Jewish, so I'll be fine. I think there's many today who have kind of that same attitude in our culture. They're not interested in God, really. They're not really interested in being part of God's kingdom. They're not really convinced that there is an afterlife, but they think, well, you know what, if there is heaven and hell, I'm sure I'm going to heaven. Because, yeah, I'm I'm sure I'm going to heaven. I'm fine. I'm fine. They don't don't have this love and devotion to Jesus that surpasses all other allegiances. They don't desire to crucify their sinful nature, to live lives as instruments of God's spirit for his kingdom. But by golly, they prayed the sinner's prayer when they were eight, and they go to church once or twice a year, maybe. And so if there's a heaven, they're going there because of their Christian culture, just like this man thought. If there's a heaven, he's going there because of his Jewish ethnicity. And so he asks Abraham, send Lazarus to help me. Which is amazing because it shows that he recognizes Lazarus. That's one of those Freudian slips. Like, burp, oh, oh, didn't mean to say that. But it's like he can't say that he can't say that he was ignorant. He can't be like, I didn't know. Gosh, I didn't know there was this poor man outside my gate. I had no idea. He knew, he knows Lazarus' name. But he doesn't even apologize. He doesn't even talk directly to Lazarus. He talks directly to Abraham. He talks about Lazarus like a servant, like a subordinate. So even though Lazarus is in heaven and he's in hell, he still doesn't view Lazarus like an equal. People in hell are regretful, but they're not repentant; They haven't learned their lesson, so to speak. And so Abraham responds by saying, dear son, dear son, he's loving. He's not cold and indifferent. He doesn't hate this man. He says, dear son, look, in your life, you received your good things, which you used on yourself. Well Lazarus received bad things which he endured trusting in God and which you did nothing to help. And now Lazarus is comforted here and you are in agony and besides all this there is a great chasm fixed between us. So his, your punishment is just but even apart from that we couldn't help you. And so the rich man responds, he says, hey, Abraham, please send Lazarus to my brother so they don't come here. And Abraham says, don't worry, they have revelation from God already. We've already, God's already been revealed to them. And he says, if they won't listen to that, seeing a person from the dead isn't going to make a difference. I mean, think about it this way. If the rich man who's in hell right now seeing Lazarus in heaven, if that doesn't change his character, then how would his brothers seeing Lazarus in heaven from earth, how would their character be changed? It's easy to claim, if we just saw a miracle, I would would believe, but I'm not so sure about that. I think we generally see what we want to see, we believe what we want to believe. So here's some application points as this relates to gluttony. The key question in responding to gross inequality is not why, but rather what now? Not why, but rather what now? And I realize that sounds a little bit maybe controversial. Controversial. Um, I think it is good sometimes to ask why, to understand root causes for why inequality exists. But I feel like it just so often leads to simplistic finger-pointing. Like, it's your fault that this inequality... And they're like, no, not my fault, it's his fault. They're like, no, it's your fault. And and that's all that we end up doing is just finger-pointing. I think it's just better to say, look, we see what is the reality. Let's look around the reality. Let's see what's actually happening now, what should be done about it. So instead of finger pointing, instead of making people defensive, let's say, let's just take an honest look at the inequalities around us, and let's say, what now, what now, what can we do together to solve these problems? Not whose fault is it, but how do we do what where do we go from here? If you are prosperous, which almost all of you are by global standards. The key to living a generous life is not found by sitting around in some Ivy League lecture hall with other white, wealthy, privileged students debating why a good God, if he exists, would allow you to be so rich while other people are so poor. That doesn't do anything. Rather, the key question is, what now? Yes, there is gross inequality in the world, so what are you going to do about it now? Will you use your wealth now to serve God, or will you make it into an idol? Will you use it as an excuse not to believe in God? Who is the person at your gate in desperate need? And what will you do about it? How will you use your money now to make friends who will welcome you when you arrive into heaven? Who will be like, I can't believe they're here. Oh, this is great. That person helped me out so much. See, so I think it's so easy to just kind of deal in theoreticals, like, oh, why would God do this? And blah, blah, blah. Whose fault is it? But man, when it comes to like practical, like what now? What do we do now? That's where most humans are like, ah, okay, let's, let's go back to the old first question. And if you are suffering like Lazarus, it is usually no help asking questions like, why is life so unfair? And who should be blamed for it? And why has God allowed me to suffer? I guarantee you that God has good reasons, but we often don't know them fully in this life. And so instead, the key question is whether you will trust God now. Will you trust him now? Second, watch for symptoms of gluttony. First symptom is gorging. Gorging instead of moderation. I'm not going to say a lot about that. I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. Second one, grazing instead of (laughs) self-control. Grazing. You know that you, dinner is like an hour away, but you're like, I need to eat now, man. I need to graze. And I, I get it. If you're on some weird paleo diet where you've got to eat every hour, What? I, that's not my point. It's not my point. But it's this idea that I just got to graze. Yeah, I can, I can, I can watch the, the Monday night football game, but I want to watch a whole day on Sunday, right? There's just a sense of grazing instead of self-control. Third, obsessively thinking about and longing for consumption instead of for God. So this is something a lot of Americans, including myself, deal with. Do you long for food more than for God? Do you long to go to that incredible brewery after church more than you long to worship God in church right now? Is there something else that brings you more pleasure and comfort that you long for more than God? Four, spending too much money and energy on consumption instead of being generous. I realize that's very subjective, so I'm not going to try to tell you exactly what that is. That's between you and God. But look at your food budget. How much money are you spending on eating out, on buying food? Again, I'm not going to tell you the right amount. I don't know what it is for you and your circumstances, but pray about it. Think about your your entertainment budgets. Do you really need Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and Vudu and cable? You need all of them to entertain yourself? Could maybe some of that money be used to spend on people in need fifth discontentment instead of thankfulness and discontentment especially with what the ancients called common forms of consumption common forms i think we've all said at some point i don't want to drink water i want to drink whatever and I, i get that i feel that way a lot but is there, there's a point, I think, sometimes where it's like, I can't just eat common food. I can't just drink common drink. I can't just do what's common. I'm dissatisfied with that. I need richer foods. I need better quality. If you start getting to that point where you can't be satisfied with just some common things, it's a good sign that you're either gluttonous or well on your way toward there. Third, so we've been, I've been kind of negative here on the first two. Let's get a little more positive. Prevent gluttony by remembering to save room for the main course. Save room. Hebrews 12, the author says, run the race of faith. It compares, uh, it compares our faith to a marathon. It says, run the race of faith, fixing your eyes on Jesus and the great crowd of witnesses at the finish line. Put your eyes on that finish line. And there's a sense in which, yes, Jesus is in you, and he's running with you, but he's also at the finish line, and there's this huge crowd of witnesses. And some of those witnesses are going to be people that you have helped in this life, people that you have been generous for, and they're going to go ahead of you, and they're going to be waiting for you at the finish line. They're like, yeah, come on, man. And you're fixing your eyes on that. And you know that when you cross that line, you're going to have the most amazing banquet you've ever enjoyed. It's going to be like consuming pure joy. And you fix your eyes on that that helps to prevent gluttony. Some of you guys have been so generous in inviting me over for dinner, and I'm a bit of a hick, and so that can put like some constraints on your style, your Southern California style, but you invite me over anyway, and what what sometimes happens is you bring out this plate of food, and I'm like, wow, fried calamari for dinner, this is great, and so I just start pounding it, and I'm eating, and you're looking at me like, what is wrong with this hick, and finally, you're polite though, you're not going to say that, so you're like, Hey, Pastor Dave, while you're hungry, save room for the main course. And I'm like, main course, whoa, there's more. I mean, this is good, but this isn't the main course. The main course must be even better. And so I I have to put a brakes on on, on my appetizers a little bit. i just kind of okay, okay, I'm not going to eat so much because I want the main course. And here, I kind of wondered why you only brought out one plate, but I I thought it was for me. But here, other people have some appetizers. The blessings of this life are just appetizers. They're good things. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. By all means, they're from God, but they're just appetizers. Pointing toward the real banquet that's coming. And so remember that. That'll help you to to moderate your consumption of these wonderful appetizers and also help you to share. Help you to share your appetizers. You don't need to pound and fill up on these appetizers. not like that's the only thing you're ever going to eat. you got a main course coming. So share your appetizers with somebody who ended up just getting a basket of stale chips or something. You're like, dude, I feel bad for you. Have some calamari, man. You're going to make some friends who are going to greet you in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your appetizers that you bless us with. That you always remember that we're weak and that we're prone to... We're prone to be gluttonous, we are gluttons, and yet you invite us gluttons to the most amazing feast, and you say, if we can moderate our appetite, if we can share, we're going to enjoy a banquet that goes beyond anything we can imagine right now. And so, Lord, help us to be humble, and help us to come before you in prayer, and just be sensitive to your Holy Spirit as it regards our budget, regards our time, our energy, what we focus on, so that we'll... I desire you and will desire to help those who indeed are less fortunate than us. We ask this in the name of Jesus.